0: hello and welcome to peach pod a georgia politics podcast my name is kyle hayes and i am your host and joining me on today's podcast sitting right
1: in front of me in the same room is luke boggs luke how are you doing i think i'm six feet away though even though we're six both, feet away you know vaccinated and fine but still trying to be safe still trying to be safe that's right just for you humble listeners so that you don't have to lose us anytime soon but how's it going i'm here i live in your town now yeah it's good to good to have you back it's good to be in person when was the last time we did this in person like uh god it was when we
0: so there was a we did some recordings i think we recorded like two things in one day for the hundredth episode of peach pod and i think we're now on like 270 something.
1: Yeah. Well, so it's
0: been a, been a while. I was in D.C., yeah. um, but, but I'm back. back. I'm here. I'm back in Athens. Um, I'm here for the foreseeable future. It's good to be home um, and it's good to get to do this with you in person. So on today's show, we are going to talk about really the biggest thing going on in uh, democratic politics right now is the uh, legislative wrangling on the Hill over the Build Back Better big legislative proposal from Joe Biden and congressional Democrats that is competing. It's tied up with the bipartisan infrastructure proposal that has passed the Senate and that is being held up in the House really as a piece of leverage to try to force through sort of the totality of Joe Biden's agenda. All of that is sort of the things that Democrats want to do. That also got tied up this week in some things that Democrats have to do Which was passed legislation earlier last week that averted a government shutdown, and then this week they're going to have to pass separate legislation, maybe separate, maybe combined with something else. We'll see. But other legislation that will uh, raise the nation's debt ceiling so that the United States does not default on its debt and send us into an economic catastrophe. Yet another one would be the third one of our young lives, Luke. Um, So we're going to talk about all that wrangling on the hill. Then we're also going to talk about the initial release of congressional district maps that are being released as a part of the redistricting process that is happening this fall. I believe it was uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's office who released the first congressional map. So we're going to talk about that map, but we're also going to talk about where it comes from and what it might signal about future maps, both for our congressional districts and for state legislative districts. And then we'll wrap up with some additional politics here. Uh, We'll talk for a few minutes on the uh, rally held by former President Trump down in Perry, where he made a, a key endorsement. In the governor's race, I believe he wants Stacey Abrams to be the next governor of Georgia.
1: I think he just doesn't want Brian Kemp. And if that means Stacey Abrams, I think he's okay with that.
0: That's true. That's probably the more honest rendering of what happened down at that rally. That's what I'm here for, keeping you honest, Kyle. Um, But we're going to talk about what that meant because, boy, was that a surprise. Let's start, though, with what Democrats are dealing with uh, in Capitol Hill in Washington. And the biggest piece of this is sort of this tie between the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has passed the Senate, and which would under most normal conditions would easily pass the House, but which is being held up in the House by House progressives as a way to leverage commitment to pass the larger $3.5 trillion piece of legislation that is a host of investments, really investments in the people of the United States, Doing things like expanding, permanently expanding the child tax credit, expanding the earned income tax credit, uh, doing enacting policies that would lower prices for prescription drugs and expand access to health care, create a universal paid leave program, a universal pre-K program, uh, help schools modernize and, and improve their buildings and their infrastructure, make higher education more affordable, and make really significant maybe take the last opportunity to make really significant investments to combat climate change, which also at the same time means a host of new jobs in new industries that will spring up to change our the way we produce energy um, and make it more resilient and more renewable in the face of climate change.
1: It's a don't you mean it's $3.5 trillion to build back better?
0: <laughs> yes, it is building back better. Whatever that in, means. It is literally building everything back right. better. Um So it's kind of worth it to go through the list. You know, everybody, I, I started there because I've watched everybody shorthand it to the $3.5 trillion safety net bill or social spending bill and it's easy to lose the, the broad list of investments and how many of the things that we have talked about on this show, and that Democrats have been talking about for the last you know, 10 years, the ways in which the economy is failing people. And this is a huge piece of legislation that tries to get at as many of those things as possible. But Luke, the one problem is, they need 50 votes. And right now, they can't seem to get 50 votes in the US Senate for this proposal. What do you think of sort of the the legislative process here and where Democrats stand is they are trying really trying to come to a solution and, and get this bill passed.
1: The place I always start when I think about this is history and while this seems like a incredibly dysfunctional and slow process, I would like to remind everyone that this time in the Obama administration, they had still not count you know, passed the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. That happened in March of you know, 2010, uh, 2011, yeah, 2010, 2010. So, you know, we're still, you know, ahead of schedule <laughs> by, by my read, especially considering the fact that, you know, Biden has already done a pretty big proposal and he got the infrastructure bill with Republican singer votes done in the Senate. It's just in the House. And so to me, I think, does this feel chaotic? Does it feel bad? Absolutely. But compared to, other recent, you know, fights uh, in the legislature and uh, Congress and uh, even, you know, historical ones. I mean, it, it really is kind of typical, honestly. And the fact that they are as close as they are to a deal, in my mind, is is a good thing and not a bad thing. Um, I think really Joe Biden probably said this best. You know, he said it doesn't matter if it's six days, six or, or sorry, six hours, six days or six weeks. It's like all it matters is that they get the bill passed. And I, I agree with that. Um, I, I really think Joe Biden, for once, <laughs> his career may have said it best. Uh, he's to you know, because I, I don't think it matters when it gets done, as long as it gets done, you know, in a couple weeks, I, I think that's that's perfectly fine and uh, important to work this this process through. So the, th- uh, the last thing I'll say is, it's very obvious now that Joe Biden is in this debate in a way that he was not previously. And I think there's there's probably two things to take away from that. One, the American Rescue Plan felt a lot smoother, I think, for everybody, probably for Joe Biden, <laughs> too, and the Senate Democrats. Uh, and I I think the reason why it did, and it really only kind of hit a rocky place right at the end, is because Joe Biden was able to devote his Undo, you know, as much as a president can have undivided attention on any topic, I think Biden was able to have his undivided attention on the American Rescue Plan, and now. With the build back better and this very intricate legislative maneuvering that gets no surprise that some guy who was in the senate for 30 years (laughs) came up with uh you know he was not able to devote his full attention to that he was having to deal with the afghanistan withdrawal he's been dealing with the uh, delta variant uh in you know increase in surge and so it's very clear now that those other crises have hit the back burner a little bit and he's now focusing pretty heavily on this and I think that's why we're seeing uh, so much activity and movement uh, not only from him but you know the legislature as well and that see you know things are starting to move forward uh, somewhat and I, I think that that just you know it does it, it, it to me shows that it does matter who who is electing and who is in positions because even uh, you know, even though it's just one guy, it's, it's, it's Biden's influence on this process is to me quite apparent, uh, now in the past couple days.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that he did on Friday was he, he made, I think a key decision where the, uh, the dueling factions of the party couldn't make this key decision, which was there was this, there, there were sort of two paths forward for Democrats. One was to, stop holding up the bipartisan infrastructure bill, take it as a win, go around, tout the bipartisan infrastructure bill and tout the fact that Joe Biden got a major bipartisan accomplishment through Congress, which was something important that he ran on, and which he believes is a path to lowering the temperature politically in this country. There was that path forward. That path obviously has a lot of skepticism from progressives who say, yeah, that's great. But We need much more than a glorified road and bridges spending bill to deal with all the problems. And and Joe Biden's whole campaign was wrapped up in these four major crises that the country is facing, maybe the most prominent and long lasting of which is climate change. And you don't tout a major accomplishment that they're saying was written by oil company lobbyists and is mainly aimed at, you know, fixing the nation's roads and bridges when the biggest problem you face as a country is climate change that that just those things are at a fundamental mismatch. And so you should hold up that proposal to be sure that you can get the full uh, comprehensive version of the Biden agenda, which because of the filibuster and the dynamics in the Senate, you're basically trying to stuff all into one bill, instead of spending two steady years legislating to get all this stuff done. Biden basically came out on Friday and said, we're going to hold up the bipartisan infrastructure bill, we want to see both bills pass and there's no reason there's no hurry to move everything forward. Um, I mean, obviously he wants Congress to keep moving, but there's no reason to, to let the bipartisan infrastructure bill go and just wait on the other bigger social spending bill. And so that I think is a big piece of his influence. The other thing that I think that this is looking much less smooth than the American rescue plan is Democrats were very unified, during the Trump era, during 2020, that Donald Trump did a terrible job managing the pandemic. And I think there was a lot more unity around what a rescue package, an emergency response, what that looked like. And that's what you got out of the American Rescue Plan. Democrats really are somewhat divided over some of these social spending issues that they are working on in this big bill. And so you're seeing those divisions come out. But I think it was promising on Friday, coming out of this long week where Democrats missed a self-imposed deadline, that they weren't fighting with each other and saying, oh, it's, you know, let's just ditch the whole process. This whole thing was a mess. Basically, everybody is saying, we're going to come to an agreement. It's going to take a little more time, but we're going to come to an agreement. And so for the most part, people were sounding really positive notes coming out of this big week. Um, And I think you're right, Luke, that it, you're right. and, And Joe Biden is right that it, you know, if it's six days or six weeks or six months, like, if they get it done, and if they get it done before the midterms, then it'll be fine. And all this will just be part of the regular legislative give and take.
1: How do you feel about the tying the two bills together, though? Like, do you know, because there is the option of just getting the infrastructure bill done. And it, it, let's assume that the votes were there, you know, like that the progressives wouldn't hold it up. Cause I think right now, a big reason why Pelosi hasn't put the infrastructure bill on the floor is that it would get voted down and that they would not successfully pass it. Um, or wait, ha, did she, did she end up putting on the floor? No, she, no, didn't, she never okay. did. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So if she got very close, but then didn't do it. So like, do you think that's the right strategy or?
0: I do. Yeah. Because I think the progressives have been at this table before, I mean, the Affordable Care Act was watered down in a lot of key ways that progressives didn't like, Um, because at the end of the day, the Obama administration and leaders in Congress wanted a bill, and they gave more power in the negotiating process to the moderates in the Senate, Um, even though Democrats had larger majorities. I think somewhat ironically, because they have smaller majorities, the, the progressive threat at this point to hold things up is equivalent to the centrist threat to not back the big social spending bill. But I I think that's the right path. I think both have to move forward. I think if you were to let one move forward, you would basically be choosing the side of the moderates. And that would engender so much frustration and criticism among the progressives that the whole thing could just fall apart. So I think keeping people on the same page, tying people's fates together, I think is really important because the the progressives have the policy push that they want, but it's really the moderates who are more invested politically in Joe Biden's success. Because if, if this whole legislative legislative process of the last two years looks like a shit show in November of 2022, it's the moderates that are going to lose their seats, not the progressives.
1: Yeah. I think that's generally right though. I would reframe it one slightly different way, which is I, I really think if the bipartisan infrastructure bill got, through and on Joe Biden's desk and he signed it, that the moderates would be like, oh, that's enough spending. We, we, we have done enough. Let's go home <laughs> or wait a while, uh, you know, put another strategic pause on the bill, as Joe Manchin might say. Uh, but it would be an indefinite pause because uh, they, they, you know, the one thing is, and I think, you know, we should give that bill credit where it's due. It's like, is it the infrastructure bill perfect? Is it climate you know, friendly in the way that it should be. I, no, but it is a good bill, and it's like it, it is important to invest in these things because not every day, thank God, but every other day, I feel like I, uh, you know, see a news alert pop up of a camtrack track train derailing or a bridge falling down, and so it's just like the some of this stuff needs to get done. Uh, and and so I think tying it together is is really the only way they will get it done because the the sing it. Dems and I I also think it's important to note here while everyone is constantly talking about Kirsten Soma and Joe Manchin there are others there are people hiding behind them it's just their politics are not as advantageous as Joe Manchin's is to constantly be agitating about this and so I think uh, people underestimate just how much um, concern there is among a lot of Senate Democrats that we've been spending a lot of money and it might lead to inflation or higher unemployment because people don't want to go back to work. And all all these narratives that you hear only coming from Joe Manchin regularly, but there are other Dems that probably believe it. Well, the other
0: piece is that the actual policy substantive piece of this. And the thing that gets lost is we are, the thing that gets lost is Democrats are stuffing all this piece into one piece of legislation that they are having to pass with only Democratic votes through the reconciliation process because Republicans don't believe that they have any responsibility to create legislative solutions to all of these problems across the board. And it is pretty clear we're going to talk here about maps and, and redistricting here in a second, but it's pretty clear that in some sense no matter what Democrats do, they are going to be at risk of losing power in Washington just by the natural ebb and flow ebb and flow of politics where, When you run everything, you're now responsible. And then the other party can just run against you. And that combined with redistricting makes the house very vulnerable. Um, And I think in some ways, the Senate's a little less vulnerable, but either way, if you lose the house, even if you keep the Senate, the legislative agenda for the first Biden term is done. Republicans are not interested in playing ball on any of these issues they're not willing to give the Biden administration a win, even if they themselves could get other wins. And like the only, you know, I think the one sort of like lowly exception to that is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. But like, you know, if you look at the state of the American economy for a lot of people, even before the pandemic, childcare was too expensive, housing was too expensive, higher education was too expensive. And Democrats have this one opportunity to make progress on these issues. And that's why I think you have to play legislative hardball because the stakes here for real people are so high. And it's just very clear that there is not a second opportunity for six or eight or 10 years to have the kind of control. And to be honest, we're very lucky. We're, we're two Georgia Senate wins away from not having this control. Um, And so I, you know, I just think it's obvious that you just have to press and take every opportunity. And in some ways, I think you don't even think about 2022. You're like, this is just the last chance that Democrats have to govern forever. Let's make the most of it. And then we'll see where things are after the next election.
1: Yeah, I view it from a slightly different perspective, but, you know, somewhat in track, which is, I think that the only way that you beat the political tides of gravity of, you know, what feels inevitable of Democrats losing control of this House or the Senate or both is by doing something big that sort of, you know, really shows to people that Democrats are capable of getting things done, keeping them in charge is worth something. And to me, I think the bipartisan infrastructure bill and, you know, basically, honestly, $1.5 or above in the reconciliation bill has a decent chance of doing that. Uh, it sort of depends on what that last, uh, you know, pro, uh, uh, proposal looks like for the, the reconciliation bill. But you know, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised, you know, we're talking on Sunday, Uh, I think it was on Friday or Thursday, Joe Manchin put out uh, a statement with Schumer saying it's like "Eh, 1.5 is what I'm kind of (laughs) feeling. I could go a little higher. I could go a little lower, but that's about what I'm feeling. And it's like, you know, to me, that's is it everything that I want? No. Is it as much as we need? Probably not. But is it a good step forward? And a lot of, you know, a lot of great things could happen with that money that have been long, long overdue. Uh, so to to me, I, I think that clarifies this a lot, especially, you know, considering the fact that uh, Raphael Warnock is going to be up in 2022, and he is going to need some things to campaign on. And while I'm sure everyone will be thank you for the checks, uh, Mr. Warnock, or Reverend Singer <laughs> Warnock. Uh, but that was, you know, two years ago, <laughs> what have you done for me lately? And so there's things in this bill, I think could definitely add to his list of uh, accomplishments.
0: That I think actually raises a really important question and to, and to bring this back locally. So I think that Manchin letter was actually, I think this is the thing that Manchin and the the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer signed this little document that they signed. I think it was earlier this summer or something. And he, and I think it, it has like 1.5 trillion as the number that Manchin seems to want, although it doesn't seem to be super, it doesn't seem to be a red line for him. There does seem to be some flexibility there. And then there seem to be some policy asks, which I think fall into kind of two major buckets. One is to, instead of having a bunch of these programs be universal, to means test them so that the help only goes to the lowest income people. Um, And then the second thing is to, I think, protect West Virginia's coal industry more than a lot of people who want to take a really aggressive approach to crime to climate change would want to do. Um, But the the 1.5 trillion number, I think raises this really interesting question where we've been talking about a $3.5 trillion bill, which is $3.5 trillion in spending in investments that is offset by raising somewhere in that ballpark of $3.5 trillion in revenue by increasing taxes on the wealthy. Now, Manchin seems on board for tax increases for the wealthy, um, but he seems to want a lower spending number. But it raises the question of what, from the current proposal, is going to make it into the final proposal that you shape in some ballpark of $1.5 to $2 trillion. And this question of do you have to cut out entirely some things that are currently in the 3.5 trillion? Or do you sort of shrink the size of everything in the 3.5 trillion to make Mansions number? And then this larger question of whether Kishman Sinema is going to play ball, I think that's a separate thing. But relevant to Raphael Warnock, one of the provisions that was in the 3.5 trillion dollar bill was a proposal to basically bypass Republican governors like Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who have refused the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion, and to enroll those people who would get care under Medicaid expansion, to enroll them in a federal program that would basically effectively have the federal government expand Medicaid over Georgia's objection, and I'm wondering whether that proposal ends up in the final bill, and in what and in what form it does, because that to me would be a key. I mean, it's a super important policy thing. It's got important racial equity implications for people in Georgia. It also would be an important campaigning item for Raphael Warnock, who has been pushing for Congress to put this Medicaid expansion proposal in. And so I think one question for Warnock, this is also a question for Mark Kelly in Arizona, and for all the Democrats who will be up in the Senate in 2022 is what does this final bill actually look like, and are you delivering substantive accomplishments in the short time that you've had in Washington so far?
1: Yeah, and I would agree that this proposal in particular is really important both for all the people who would help because, frankly, it's not going to happen otherwise, more than likely, because of the fact that in Georgia and I think a couple of the other states that they've refused to expand mega the governor actually doesn't have the unilateral power anymore like they used to and that legislature has taken that away from them and so you know even if stacy abrams or whoever ends up running for the georgia gubernatorial nomination uh, on the democratic side no, don't you
0: just made uh, a bunch of democrats heart skip a beat by saying somebody other than stacy yeah, abrams yeah yeah well you might she have has, made donald trump's heart skip a beat too. i know
1: he's, he seems heartbroken but we'll get back to that later um You know he uh, i mean whoever it is doesn't have the power anymore the legislature has to give them power or or i think vote for themselves either either way um and so like i don't think it's going to happen any other way that's one thing and then two just as the pure political point is i've been working on democratic campaigns since you know 2012 and I, i every single one of them since then has been campaigning on elect Democrats, we will expand Medicaid. And while it was usually in the context of state legislature races or governor's races, I think it would be a pretty good messaging boon to the party if we were able to get this done because we could say like, hey, people, we've been saying for a decade, if you elect us, we would do this thing and look at it, we did it. And so I I think that would be a a pretty good benefit. And I'm hoping this one will stay in uh, because of the fact that Joe Manchin is not nearly as elusive as some people pretend him to be. He kind of says the same thing over and over and people are like, but does he really mean it? And it's like, no, he does. And the thing that he has said a lot about uh, these programs and uh, previous programs in the American Rescue Plan is he likes to see things that are means tested and he likes to tweak around the edges of how much money you know something's getting or how much money you're giving people or where the cutoff is. And you know, this is in the ballpark of policies that he usually is interesting. And so I, I'm hoping that he will, you know, still be interesting in this one and uh, be able to, you know, as he would say, sell it to West Virginians and explain it to them, because that is his bar for voting for anything.
0: So coming out of this big, important week, Democrats did seem optimistic. Biden did seem to sort of set the parameters of how they can move forward in negotiations. But Luke, I don't know, how how confident are you that they can actually finally get to a deal sort of no matter how long it takes and that ultimately we don't get to the end and the whole thing just crashes and burns with Democrats all furious with each other?
1: I really hope that we're able to get this bill passed and done. I, I think we will because it is just so clear to me and to I think everybody else that this is the only chance Democrats have to hold on to the House and Senate. And as you mentioned at the top, you know, this is really important stuff that absolutely needs to get done. And I think this is just the only way Democrats have a shot in hell of uh, doing anything after this. And I think everybody really, I I feel like everybody wants at least 80% of this stuff to happen. It's just a a lot of uh, questions around the edge. And you know, the fact that Joe Manchin has thrown a number out there, the fact that, you know, Chuck Schumer signed on to that letter with him and, you know, I, I think I think it's we're just still in the negotiation phase and I think we're going to get something done. Will it be everything that everyone wants? Absolutely not. But I I, I would be surprised. And I think this is, you know. Not to start a whole other topic, but just to hit on this briefly, uh, because I think it's really important, is P- the, the media coverage is used to the dynamics of the Republican Party, which is the crazy people on the far right. They are just completely and totally unreasonable. And they will, you know, put a flag in the sand and say, this is our position and we will not move. And they don't move. Whereas the progressives and, you know, the moderates really haven't said that either. You know, they both, you know, the progressives said, we want more. And the moderates have said, we want a little less. And it's it's a it's a back and forth thing where there's, there's room for compromise. Uh, and I, I think we will get to that compromise. It just might take longer and be a little uglier than anybody wishes including them, probably.
0: Now, the one other thing that hangs in the balance here is what Democrats will do about the debt ceiling. By mid-October, at least, they need to pass legislation that would raise or suspend the debt ceiling so that the nation does not default on its obligations, which is a somewhat complicated economic thing, but the byproduct of which is we would enter into a deep recession and the creditworthiness of the United States, one of the world's largest economies would be brought into question. Luke, one complication here is that Democrats have to make a decision that they either will push for Republican support to raise the debt limit, and Democrats voted with Republicans to raise the debt limit at least once, if not two or three times during the Trump administration, uh, but they will have to decide ultimately do they wait and see if Republicans will fold and decide to give them the votes they need to raise the debt ceiling? Or they would have to do something like get rid of the filibuster or create a carve out in the filibuster for the debt ceiling to be able to pass it with Democrat only votes. Um, and they wanted, they actually offered to pass it with Democrat only votes last week and they put up what's called a unanimous consent request in the Senate and if republicans had just sat back and done nothing they would have been allowed to pass it with only democratic votes and it wouldn't have run into any of these problems of the filibuster or anything like that and republicans refused to consent to that putting more political pressure on democrats i don't know i like obviously the consequence of the consequences of default are Huge and very important. I still find it hard to believe that we are actually going to default, and that Democrats who control everything and who would be blamed if we do default would not
1: find some way
0: well, to push I'll,
1: this through. I'll, I'll throw I'll throw a little bit of hay on that immediately, which is I don't think it's a guarantee Democrats would get blamed for it because one thing I have noticed since the Trump era is that the media is really not engaging in as much both cyberism as they used to. And that pretty much every single news program or article I've read has just blamed Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans for this move. And so I, I don't think Democrats would get universally blamed. Would we get some? Oh, sure. Cause we do. We are technically in charge, but I think on that front and I'm not just watching, you know, MSNBC, I mean, you know, basically everybody, but Fox news, i've seen uh is is you know get putting the blame on senate republicans so that's the first thing and then the second thing i'll say is i think there is some way through reconciliation they can raise the debt ceiling it's a a little less convenient but there is a way to do it because if i recall correctly the you can suspend the debt ceiling which is basically a time period based restriction if you're not doing it through reconciliation and through reconciliation you can raise it to a certain number um and so i think that's that's options still on the table for democrats
0: yeah the i mean the problem there is not the reconciliation rules or the ability to do it it's you have one reconciliation bill and you need to get agreement on it and you have two weeks to do it and you know, as we've talked about for the last 30 minutes, Democrats just don't have agreement across the board to do it.
1: Though so I think you, the parliamentarian, how oh, we're getting so in the weeds, but this is why you people listen to the show. You know, it is, uh, I, I think the parliamentarian just said, yeah, screw it. Do as many reconcilia- reconciliation bills as you want per year, which was previously that you had about two, depending on how you timed things. So I, I, I think that option is available, but you know, we'll, we'll Yeah, we'll you see. just have
0: to start the process over. Right. Um, and that's a timely thing or a time consuming thing too. So I don't know, man. This uh when we were uh putting the notes together for this episode, my uh headline for this one was shit gets hard for Democrats because they now are absorbing all of the crises and all the responsibility that they asked for when they asked for the keys to governing. Uh this is just the downside to having all the power. Um, Let's move on here and talk about the release of the first congressional district map. So this was a map that was released by Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's office. Um, And I think the initial conception of the fact that this was a map coming from Duncan's office and not from sort of the Senate Republican caucus as a whole, or coming from really anywhere on the House side, which I think has a lot more unity than they do on the Senate side, that This map may have been a first offering, uh, but may not be the final place where Republicans are going to land in how they draw the congressional district lines during redistricting in November. And just to remind people, so you'll start to see drafts of maps float around. Republicans, I think, are going to try to do a PR push around what they think are fair maps. And they're going to say These maps are much more fair than the gerrymandered maps that Democrats drew in the mid 2000s when they were trying to hold on to power in this state. Um, And so it's a bit of a PR battle there. But Luke, what did you think of this congressional district map released by Jeff Duncan's office? And and what are the main takeaways for what it does, particularly in the sixth and seventh congressional districts, districts currently held by Democrats, but where Republicans may be able to redraw the lines and uh, take one or both of those seats back in the next uh, election.
1: Yeah, I'm going to immediately disappoint everyone in saying that I am not getting, you know, to run this through some intricate program that I have built to, to you know, divining all the things it does. But I mean, the, the place I would start with this map, there's two things. One, the fact that's coming from Jeff Duncan makes me think that I, I will be a little surprised if this ends up being the final map or a map that's close to the final map. But the thing I will say about this proposal is and I, again, this is me mostly eyeballing it, but I mean, honestly, for congressional maps, that's not a horrible way to do it uh, for your, your first kind of takeaways. And the first thing I would say is this is a pretty similar map to the current map. I mean, it basically to me is a map that takes into consideration the population changes that have happened and, you know, makes pretty logical decisions about how you would change it if you're using that old map as your baseline. And the most, you know, political thing it does is basically turns the 7th into a decently safe Democratic district. And I mean, it basically is only in Gwinnett. Uh, now, because Gwinnett's grown so much, uh, that that definitely seems possible. And then it makes the sixth a lot more competitive by grabbing uh, all of, or at least a very big chunk of Forsyth County, which is uh, far more uh, conservative than the you know previous populations in the sixth. And so, you know, to to recall, uh, the sixth is currently held by Lucy McBath The seventh is her held by Carolyn Bordeaux, and. Long story short, The Six will now be a lot more competitive than it is, which to me is a really interesting decision, because as far as who I would think is easier to pick off, I would think Carolyn Bordeaux uh, you know, is, is is easier to pick off than Lucy McBath. But.
0: Well, and if I could just interrupt you there, because this is really interesting, having watched the way that Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux have operated for the last couple of years. Lucy McBath, basically through her entire time in Congress, has been a team player for Democrats. She hasn't created a lot of problems for them. She is not a part of these groups of moderate lawmakers who are saying that the spending bill is too much, saying that Democrats are being too progressive, that they're losing the views of more moderate people, that they're not representing those people. Carolyn Bordeaux, she's been in Congress a much shorter time. You know, she lost in 2018 to Rob Woodall. Rob Woodall retired. Carolyn Bordeaux came back and ran again in 2020 and won that seat. But Carolyn Bordeaux has been in some instances among these group of moderate lawmakers who are concerned about the debt, who are concerned about too much spending, who very clearly want to position themselves as appearing part of a moderate, not a too progressive part of the Democratic Party. And yet, Democrats or Republicans, at least in this current map have decided in some ways that Lucy McBath is the more vulnerable one relative to Carolyn Bordeaux. And in some ways, I also, I also think it creates some problems for Carolyn Bordeaux because Carolyn Bordeaux has, seems to have a little bit more frustration among the more progressive members of her district because of all this moderate show casting that she's been doing. Um, But I don't know. I was a little surprised that Republicans didn't think the easier get was Carolyn Bordeaux in the seventh relative to Macbeth. Um, And McBath seemed to maybe not think that either.
1: Yeah. And I I think it's really a geography thing is that they, you know, because this is the thing that, because a lot of times when I talk to people about redistricting and redistricting in Georgia in particular, they act like that the republicans will be able to divine you know more republican votes out of places that there aren't republican votes i mean to just cut right to it it's just there are republicans who are currently elected in office as congress people and they'd like to remain congress people and to the extent you draw these maps and you make them insane and that hurts the current republicans and so they they want to stay in office and remain republican congress people and if you're going to do that and also pick up seats you have to be careful about how you do it and another thing about this map that i think is interesting it is it is a conservative small c conservative map in the sense that it is taking the geography that makes the most sense to throw it into a district currently held by a democrat to try to win that district. And while they could have drawn a version of the 6th and 7th that Republicans could have won easily, that would have threatened the other Republicans in Congress currently who would like to remain in Congress. And so I think that's why they're not doing that. And to me, this is the most plausible way you could pick up a Republican seat in Georgia without threatening any of the other existing seats. And that's, I mean, that's hard to do uh, typically. So, you know, I, I think that is a smart part of this map. The other smart part of this map is, I should have said this at the beginning, it doesn't look bad, you know, like it's, you know, our current maps, are they gerrymandered? Absolutely. Uh, do they reflect the state of Georgia? No, they don't, but they, you know, they, they aren't, of the insanely egregious variety of some states like North Carolina, where it's like, I mean, it makes sense. All the Democrat, not all, but most of the Democrats in the state are concentrated in a couple key places. And, you know, they aren't split in up in a lot of really, really egregious ways as you know, in some other states. One other thing I'll say, just because I'm biased and that I live there, I do appreciate that this map by Duncan, which, you know, is by no means the final map, It does actually have all of Athens in one district, and I think that is very nice because Athens is a a city that I think uh, deserves uh, full representation, even if it's from a Republican. Uh, Them having to win the entire city or be concerned about the votes of that entire city, I think is a good thing compared to the very abnormal, well, not abnormal, it's normal for gerrymandering, but abnormal to normal people, a splug of Athens that did not make any sense for the people uh, living in the city. So even if they are getting represented by a Republican, uh, at least the whole city will be represented by the same one.
0: Yeah, I think it is um, useful to remember that Georgia is about a 50, 50 state at this point in the statewide vote, but our congressional delegation is eight Republicans, six Democrats. It's not like it's 11 Republicans, three Democrats, and yeah, it's not possible to put every Democrat in the state down in like the fifth district in Atlanta, formerly held by John Lewis, now held by Nikema Williams. Um, but yeah, Luke, what does it say that this map came from Jeff Duncan's office? And, and do you think that Republicans who are not Jeff Duncan, and and I'm thinking here, the Republicans who are probably going to have the most control in this process? the ones on the House side, allied with House Speaker David Ralston, um, how much more aggressive do you think they'll be? And if, if their aggressiveness is not on the congressional level maps, you know, do you think that a home for them to try to cement power could be in the state legislative maps?
1: Well, I'll start with the Jeff Duncan part of this, which is Jeff Duncan is not running for re-election. He is pretty sure writing a book but he's doing a bunch of other things too. the book's out no the book's out okay gop 2.0
0: i'm
1: sorry jeff i haven't read your book i'm sure it's great um, i'm sure you but, can
0: pre-order no, pre i'm sure you can order it on wherever you get your books
1: that's right um you know looking forward to that sponsorship check from jeff duncan <laughs> but uh you know jokes you can is, come talk to us about your book yeah you should, you should actually jeff i uh, hope you're out there um but you know the the name of his book is also the name of the effort he's been pushing through, which, you know, actually, uh, you know, I will say a moment of props to Jeff Duncan for, you know, trying to push the GOP to be saying, and that compared to Raffensperger and Kemp, he's stuck to his guns a lot better, I think, uh, on, you know, protecting democracy and being a advocate for a reasonable Republican party. So that all aside, um, this is a politically completely unrisky move for him to make because he is not someone that has to vote on the maps he's not someone that you know constitutionally or historically is you know the person that puts out the maps and so this is a great way for him to just say hey look how normal and reasonable i am on his way out the door for whatever his next endeavor is because jeff duncan is i think making the exact same calculation that Paul Ryan made, which is this is a great time to get out of Dodge because there's a lot of crazy stuff about to happen and I don't want to be tied with any of it. And the best way to not be tied with any of it is to not be around when it happens. And so I, I think that is a lot of what Jeff Duncan is doing with this map is trying to just put a cherry on top of aren't I reasonable and, you know, have that be something he can bring with him into his, uh, future endeavors.
0: The key question there, not to get too far down this side road, but every time I think about that comparison between Jeff Duncan and Paul Ryan, is Paul Ryan ever just going to stop going hunting in, in like Northern Wisconsin and come back to politics? Cause I don't think he's ever coming back.
1: Well, I it depends on what you Maybe say. Maybe will, is- Jeff. Well, I was going to say, it depends on what you think coming back to politics is, because is that elected office or is it influencing things on the margins? Because I, you know, I have some friends in Wisconsin and he's definitely still around and he's doing things and supporting candidates and trying to exert his influence. But uh, I, I actually truly think that Paul Ryan will be back in some capacity and I think Jeff Duncan will be too. I think they're both making a very smart calculation. I mean, they're younger guys. They have a little bit more time and I, I think they're hoping that the fever dream that I guess Donald Trump will just burn out, uh, and that they'll be able to, you know, uh, do a GOP 2.0 <laughs> when he's done. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Um, but to,
0: to get back to the map
1: here, I, I do yeah. think
0: that the place to look for Republicans attempt to cement their own power is the state legislative maps, because I think particularly for this brand of state, Republicans, You know, the, the National Party has been so co-opted by Donald Trump that they really don't have a lot of authority to try to dictate the future of politics in Washington. And yes, the margins in the U.S. House are very close. And so there could be some value add for Republicans in Georgia to try to squeeze out as many Republican congressional districts as they can. But they are not the only state that has to do that. Um, From my understanding, just from listening to other people talk about redistricting in other states, Florida is a state where Republicans can be particularly aggressive and try to flip several seats in that state to ensure that for Republicans that they can take the U.S. House, that they could do so maybe only through gerrymandering without having to become any more popular. Um, And so and really, it seems the best that Georgia could do the best that Georgia Republicans could do is flip one in maybe two seats. And then that flipping of one or maybe two seats may actually ultimately make them more vulnerable to losing three or four seats in six years, particularly if the growth in Georgia continues to be uh, among you know more diverse people coming into the state, more progressive people coming into the state. Um, you know, those districts may not be able to hold, you know, remember, the sixth district was one that Republicans held forever until until Lucy McBath won it. But I think for Republicans at the state level, they care a lot more about their ability to govern this state to keep this state a conservative state that they think is enacting good policies. Obviously, I disagree. But I think that's where their enthusiasm is. And I think that's where you would look for them to be more aggressive. And it's clear that on the statewide map, Republicans are much more vulnerable. You know, they may lose one or two or maybe even three statewide elections next year. But if you look at a state like North Carolina, where that state has also elected Democratic governors, but maintains a gerrymandered and very conservative legislature, conservatives still drive the policymaking bus. In North Carolina. That has been clear from the budget fights that they've had from the last two years, from the fact that their Democratic governor that they elected couldn't expand Medicaid in that state. And you could see that as kind of a model for Republicans here in Georgia. And that's why I think you might look to the state legislative maps for them to cement their power and them to cede and sort of try to have a good PR battle around or a good PR showing around the congressional maps but to focus their energy on the state level.
1: Yeah. And if the maps stay about as they are in the congressional level, I think you're right. I agree that the state house will be where a lot of the action is for this gerrymander. But the thing I'll say is that the danger is probably higher. I think in the state house maps and state senate maps and then congressional maps, because in the exact same way, I was saying they can't divinely, you know, move people around in a way that would, you know, make it those maps even somewhat tolerable for them to elect. I I, I really think they can only pick up one congressional seat and be safe. Um, you know, they, they can risk for the two, but like you said, in six years, they might be regretting that pretty deeply. But on the state house level, there's going to be a big, big, big will on the state house to try to draw a map to get them back to a constitutional majority so that they could pass constitutional amendments without Democrats. And I, you know, I've said it before (laughs) on here, I'll say it again. Uh, That is the biggest question I have is if they're going to push for that or not, because if they do, I think it'll probably backfire on them pretty badly. But because one, the PR will be terrible because the map will be incredibly ugly. I can't even imagine the things they do to, uh, draw a map that would get them to that number, and then two, it would be super risky because they will pass it because they have the votes, so they'll pass it, but will they be able to keep the majority forever, I, I really don't think they will. And so I, I, I'm just curious how that plays out and how they weigh that. Ooh, I didn't think about that. That would be really aggressive if they oh, yeah. try to chase the supermajority. But, you know, I mean, it is just a couple seats. You know, that's the thing. That that willpower of like, uh oh, it's just a couple seats. If we just, you know, be a little aggressive, we can do it. Uh, well, so, it's a couple
0: seats in the Senate, but it's a lot of seats in the House, right? It'd be like uh, it's 20. 120
1: is what you need.
0: So, yeah, that would be really aggressive in the state house. Like it, it only may, may only be two or three seats in the Senate, but to get back to a super majority in the state house, they currently have 101 seats and they would need to get
1: 19 more seats to be able to do that. Um, and, and I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's just in the realm of possibility enough that I could see them thinking about it. I, I, it, to be to be honest, I mean, if I was doing it, if I was in their position, I would not. <laughs> I would I would focus on covenant protection and focus on keeping the, the majority. Because, I mean, Democrats did a very similar thing in the aughts, and that flipped the the House to the Republicans. And so I, I think it's it's a high risk, high reward for them. Uh, I think it will be difficult for them to even do an incumbent protection map, especially considering the fact that unlike the congressional maps, you actually have to live in your district to run in that district. Uh, in the congressional maps, you don't have to you know, live in the sixth to run in the sixth. And so, um, I, I, yeah, I'm just curious how that plays out because I think it's gonna be tough for them.
0: I know that I am already tired of seeing Cynthia McKinney's map that stretches from the Georgia coast, I believe, all the way up to Augusta from the the mid-2000s when the Democrats did the aggressive gerrymander. I've already seen Republicans throw up that map and say, oh, look how bad the Democrats were in the mid-2000s. I don't know. I'm going to be sick of seeing that map by the time this thing is over.
1: It is a great gerrymander, though. I mean, it should be in the Hall of Fame of gerrymanders. It is.
0: Georgia Democrats, they were very... Uh, very creative, if not very good at winning elections in the mid-2000s here in our state. Um, let's close out here. Let's talk about a couple of other things that have been going on in Georgia politics. One was this like scary but also absurd rally hosted by former President Donald Trump in Perry. Oh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. He's, He's still, still around? He's still around. Can't get rid of him. He went to the Perry Fairgrounds. Uh, he was there at a rally with... Bert Jones, uh, candidate for lieutenant governor with Herschel Walker, candidate for U.S. Senate. Um, basically, the, don't leave
1: Jody Heiss out of it. Uh, you're congressman.
0: I'm sorry. Am I? Actually, I was just thinking that when you're talking district lines. Do I live in Jody Heiss's district
1: over here on the Athens west side?
0: I don't know. I think you do. Um, it's hard to know, but But again,
1: the map, the map is terrible. It's why I'm happy that, uh, at least Jeff Duncan's map puts all of Athens in one district.
0: But anyhow, so Jody Heiss was also at this rally. It's, it's the people who make up sort of the Trump slate of statewide Republican primary candidates in the 2022 elections. And I think the most notable thing to come out of this rally was Donald Trump is still sad. He's still upset. He still got a little beef. With Brian Kemp and so he let slip that he thought it'd be better for Georgia if Stacey Abrams was governor and I'm sure there's a uh, what five and a half six million democrats in the state that might agree with him um
1: really say it'd be better if anyone else besides brian kemp was governor
0: yeah but he did am i wrong did he specifically name abrams
1: he did yes he did so i mean he 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 is making it very clear that he's okay with anyone being the governor of state of georgia except brian kemp
0: what do you do if you're brian kemp man this thing is this thing is never gonna end
1: well, Kyle, it's really easy. You go on TV and you say stupid stuff. That's 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 how you win the Republican <laughs> electorate. Obviously, uh, you know you talk about the HIV vaccine that doesn't exist, and uh, talk about why mandates are bad and why doing nothing is a great thing you for your governor to do.
0: Yeah, like even though the nominal opposition that Brian Kemp currently has in the Republican primary for governor in twenty twenty two is vernon vernon jones uh the former who
1: was also at this rally and trump did not endorse
0: um yes yeah i think that i mean that that signals that like a lot of people in this trumpy faction are very upset with brian kemp but they have no productive place to go put their uh feelings and so they're just gonna like thrash around and whine about it uh, while Brian Kemp basically cruises to renomination for governor. um although it is you know, it is worth the question of if this continues on, if Donald Trump's uh you know feud with the governor continues, it sort of sets up a similar dynamic to the the voter fraud conspiracy theories that undermined Leffler and Purdue's Senate campaigns that just like. If, Repu- if there's some segment of the Republicans that are just upset and don't want to vote, they may stay home and they may be like, screw Brian Kemp. We don't like him either. And, and it doesn't matter if Stacey Abrams is governor.
1: Well, I, you know, the... <sighs> I would agree if it wasn't for the fact that Donald Trump's personal friend, Herschel Walker is also on the ballot. So I think rather than staying home, this might be a example where the libertarian candidate might get a lot of votes they wouldn't otherwise get, or a lot of people undervote and they just skip that race. I, I mean, I do not see Brian Kemp coming up with a way to fix this problem for himself uh, between now and the election, because, I don't know of anyone who could do it because it, it, it's just one of those things where Brian Kemp and Trump have never had a good relationship. You know, we've discussed this before, but like Brian Kemp did not even have a conversation with Donald Trump before Donald Trump endorsed him. It was really Sonny Purdue that kind of was doing a solid for his boy Brian back in Georgia. And like Trump has basically regretted that and not liked Brian Kemp ever since for various reasons, including nominating leffler uh instead of collins who trump really liked and so i, I just think trump is going i mean I, brian kemp and brad raffensperger and liz Cheney are like at the top of donald trump's political hit list and so i i i think there will be some wacky voting results because of that because i i don't think all of Trump's people will stay home just because I imagine he is going to continue to be quite adamant for Herschel Walker's election. But I just don't see those folks who are diehard Trumpers that live and breathe on everything that he says, uh, will vote for Brian just because they're there and he's the Republican. You look distressed. (laughs) I just,
0: it's just a lesson that like, you know, you try to ally with somebody like Trump, and he's he's just going to stab you in the back at the end. And and when he is the like, centri- the the like center of gravity for Republican politics, it just creates problems for so many of them. Like Kemp's uh, reelection is probably going to be a lot tougher than it would have been in some other instances. Your your rising star, Jeff Duncan, is is fleeing the party. Like, I don't know, man. It's it's not good politics. I don't know why they do this. Like. You know, the Republicans make the Democrats look like they're just like totally in line. Everything's normal. We just have little lev- legislative skirmishes here and there. But we're like a, a big happy family compared to them.
1: Well, I think this is a good place to go to where we wanted to wrap up, which is what does all this mean for 2022? Because we've been talking about a lot of things and it doesn't even matter. I think the, you know, easiest thing to knock off immediately, which is the, you know, All the congressional federal machinations of the Democratic Party right now is, as we say at the top, like if Democrats get these bills passed, if the debt ceiling doesn't get breached, I think that's all net very positive for the Democrats. The other thing I'll say is these maps are going to matter a lot, um, but I think the Almost inevitability in my mind is that the Republicans are going to gerrymander the House, the Senate, or the congressional maps to the extent that they get some bad press over it, especially combining that with the voter suppression bill that they did. And I won't be surprised if they try to do another one. Well, And the January
0: Um, 6th uh, insurrection that basically held that the results of a, a valid election shouldn't be accepted. Right, these and, are all
1: part of a, a larger piece. Right, and so those narratives are only going to continue to be bad for them. And then you have the final nail in the coffin, which is I I, I you know enjoy reading uh, books like uh, Bob Woodward's peril too much, and I, I well I especially like Bob Woodward. I and mean, one thing I like about him is he's really good at getting the details that are kind of missed in the day to day coverage, and like really extrapolating them out and and sorry your question kyle like why the republicans keep like tying themselves to trump and i think it really rolls back in on all these stories which is that there has been the narrative that you know uh, demography is destiny you know demographic demographics are destiny that the country is moving towards democrats and the constituencies that support Uh, Democrats are getting bigger while the constituencies that support Republicans are getting smaller. And I think that is still true and it hasn't come to fruition in elections yet. But I think it's funny. I think Republicans have bought into it more than Democrats have. And Lindsey Graham, especially in peril, is, you know, is quoted as really, I mean, he said this on TV too, so it's no big secret, but like he's very convinced that the Republican Party cannot succeed without Trump. And that is because that Trump brings out a bunch of voters who otherwise would not vote. And so how you keep winning elections with a smaller piece of the electorate, well, you get that smaller piece of the electorate to show up in higher numbers. And so that, you know, that's what I think is happening here. But the issue that is going to be different in you know South Carolina as compared to Georgia is that there's going to be blowback I think to Burt Jones, to Joggie Heist, to Herschel Walker that will increase democrat constituencies coming out to vote and keep moderate to leaning republicans voting for some democrats if the option they have on the Republican side are crazy Trump people and that I think is gonna be the hardest thing for them to navigate because they're doubling down on a loser effectively because Trump lost a close and tight election but he lost it and so that is a strange strategy especially considering he lost Georgia and I think what will happen is that this lesson will not be learned by Republicans in time to save them in 2022 and that you know Brian Kemp's uh, gubernatorial prospects are probably going to be one of those casualties, I think, at this point, honestly, just because of the fact that Trump will not relent, and I don't think his people will reward Brian Kemp for not being loyal to the most important Republican, and so I I just don't see him surviving that in general because I think what will happen is, as you said, very similar to the runoffs, there's just going to be enough Republicans break off that they, you know, maybe they vote for Herschel or maybe they don't show up at all, and Kemp doesn't get any benefit of that.
0: Yeah, I think, for me, it's this high level narrative of chaos versus competence. And Donald Trump has made clear that his brand and the brand of his Republican Party since 2015 has been chaos. And if Democrats can be successful in governing, can get through this reconciliation bill, can put into place policies by the midterm, that cut child poverty in half, that make higher education more affordable, that expand options for paid leave, that make housing and and childcare and all kinds of other problems that people have had more affordable, they can make a strong case, and they can make it across the entire country, that they are the party that is competent, that is capable of solving problems, and that we as a country, as as a voting populace, have made very clear through successive elections that the direction of the country is not a good one and that action is needed to fix problems and that Democrats are the only party capable of actually doing that. Um, and I think, I think that is a strong case. Now, I think you have to filter that into all of the sort of infrastructure of American politics, how you vote, how votes are counted, whether or not there's opportunities for election officials to mess with or overturn or otherwise interfere with the counting of votes. Um, so I, I think Democrats are in a good place from like a broad narrative perspective, but I think you know you come back to the For the People Act, the, the successors of that, the more moderate version that Joe Manchin is on board for. Can you actually get that legislation passed? Can Democrats get over hurdles like the filibuster in the US Senate that allows them to govern, that allows them to make the accomplishments that they can then turn around and say, this demonstrates that we are the competent party and do the protections that democrats have one opportunity to put in place around elections do those hold up so that the list the less popular party in the 2022 midterms loses those elections because there is very little that i can see in the near future that is going to improve the popularity of republicans that republicans are going to somehow find a way to be the party more representative of sort of your average voters interests and your average voters problems and proposing real legitimate solutions to those problems. And, you know, with the exception of kind of the Afghanistan withdrawal, there's been very little Democrats have done to undermine their reputation that they can do that. And I thought it was actually particularly notable that Biden's numbers took such a tremendous hit, when the Afghanistan withdrawal didn't go well, and when the fourth surge, the Delta wave surge of COVID kind of took over, because that was what sort of produced this feeling of, oh, no, maybe the Democrats aren't any more competent than the Republicans are. But I think that the, the country sort of as a whole has largely rejected the chaotic politics of the Trump era. And Republicans have no pathway out of that at this point. And so I think generally, it puts Democrats in a good place. But it You know, it all runs up against the infrastructure of American politics and whether it's ready to handle the sort of onslaught from the anti-democratic forces in the Republican Party, whether it's ready to handle that and whether the election is actually going to be a true measure of of where the American people are at in 2022.
1: Well, I will disagree with you that the Republicans don't have a way out of Trumpism. They do. It's easy. You reject Donald Trump and stop embracing him. But, you know, they, they... Uh, consistently choose to not do that, and so they're stuck with this problem.
0: Uh, Did you read read GOP 2.0 during my last monologue?
1: I I, I did not, uh, but I bet that's in there. That sounds like Jeff
0: Duncan's message.
1: Yeah, it is, but, you know, the thing is, it's, it's Jeff Duncan's message, and he may have this in his book, but it's like the times that the Republicans have consistently pushed away from Trump, you know, after the brief period after January 6th, you know Trump's numbers did go down. It's they they are actors with influence here, and they they have the ability to make their party something else, and they're just choosing not to. And so I don't think they get to be off the hook, and we shouldn't act like Trump is some you know gravitational force uh, that is a you know law of of politics uh, you know in nature. He is just a a guy that for some reason. A lot of people like, uh, and the party can decide if that's what they want their brand to be, or it can be anything else. And you know, Democrats have chosen uh, to make their brand on getting stuff done for Americans and building roads and bridges. And Trump's building back better. Building back better, it's right. And Trump's his revenge. So we'll we'll see what happens uh, (laughs) next time on Peach (laughs) Pod.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Luke, this was fun to be able to sit down. Yeah, good to be back in person. Good to be back in person. Good to be hanging out. Good to be talking politics again. We're going to pick back up the schedule here, particularly as we sprint towards this redistricting session. It's going to be a special session that starts in early November. Then you turn around really quickly and we're right into the state's legislative session, the regular one. So we'll be providing coverage of that in 2022. It'll be here before you know it. But with that, we're going to leave it there for today. So Luke Boggs, thank you as always for joining the podcast.
1: Oh, happy to be here.
0: All right. Y'all stay safe. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning into PeachPod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to PeachPod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.